recent studies show that 38% of U.S. workers live paycheck to paycheck. 39% could not come up with $3,000 if an unexpected need arose within the next month. 70% are saving less for retirement than they think they should. 32% have financial problems that negatively affect their lives. And 64% believe their generation is likely to be much worse off in retirement than that of their parents. That study was conducted before the coronavirus came along and shut the world down and created great depression levels of unemployment. I mean, clearly, as a society, managing our money was difficult under normal circumstances. And these circumstances we're in right now, they're beyond normal. Beyond Normal explores what it takes to cultivate and maintain our well-being in this time of national and global crisis. My name is Tom Godfrey. My team and I at The Big No are going to bring you conversations with thought leaders across different facets of health and well-being so we can understand and teach others what it takes to be well in today's world. Today, I want to talk about money, because while we've all been told money can't buy happiness, money does give us options and somewhat of a sense of control. And if we don't have enough money, the stress and worry it can create can negatively impact our health and well-being. And right now, a lot of people out there are stressed and worried. They've lost their jobs, taken pay cuts, reduced hours, or they're worried all those things are just around the corner. So I wanted to talk to someone who could help us all be a bit more on top of our money. Stefan Walters is the founder of Finesse and Finances, a platform that uses black culture to teach financial literacy. He is also the author of Finesse and Finances, a book that humorously covers personal finances. His work follows one motto, make money easy. Stefan Walters, thanks for being with me today. Thank you for having me on. It's definitely my pleasure. Well, Stefan, before we get into money and talking about money, I just want to talk about how you're doing. How has life under coronavirus affected you personally? As an author, a lot of my professional work involves getting out and about, giving speeches, hosting various events and seminars, and, you know, different alternative methods to teach financial literacy. So if the way businesses and organizations are operating now you know, with them working from home, a lot of them, you know, may not be operating at all. I've had to kind of adjust, you know, how I make money. But, you know, this time has given me a chance to take a step back and evaluate not only what I'm teaching, but it's given me a renewed sense of why I'm teaching and the purpose behind it, especially at a time where a lot of people are seeking out this type of information. I bet that is really scary to have kind of your livelihood is kind of built around being in person <laughs> and, you know, having direct conversations with groups of people. And now you can't do that. As someone who helps people take control of their finances, I'm guessing a lot of people are coming to you for advice now that the coronavirus has thrown a lot of our financial lives upside down. So what are the most common questions you're getting right now and how are you answering them? Well, the most common question I'm getting right now and this is generally from a lot of my peers who I may have went to college with or friends of friends who, you know, are working in a corporate world. A lot of them want to know what to do with their 401k. With the markets dropping a lot, a lot of people are panicking, you know, they're logging into their accounts, they're seeing their money dropping daily. And so, you know, it's a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic about that. They're thinking, you know, are they in danger of not being able to retire comfortably? And so the one thing that I really want to preach to people, you know, who are worried about things like that is to don't look at it. You know, a 401k is your retirement account for a reason, you know, it's designed for retirement. 
Um, you shouldn't stress yourself about the day-to-day fluctuations of, you know, the market going up, the market going down, I'm losing money, I'm gaining money. With everything going on, all the different stresses, and that should be one thing that you can take off your plate. Markets always rebound. It always happens. You know, that's something that is not going to happen soon, but it's going to happen unless you're in position to retire within, you know, the next five or 10 years. That can be something that you should take off your plate get that monkey off your back, you know, unload it, breathe easy a little bit um, and kind of put that aside. On the other end of the spectrum, I have a lot of people who are asking me, you know, is now the right time to invest? Because again, they see stock prices are lower now. And, you know, if you're blessed enough to still be working, still be receiving your income, you may think, okay, well, if you didn't think about investing before, you may be thinking, well, now's the time to take advantage. Now's a good time to get in which you're correct. But the one thing I want to stress to a lot of people is prioritize debt over investing. You know, investing sounds cool. Investing is very good. It's easy to kind of, you know, feel a certain type of way when you're investing. It sounds good. It feels good. But a lot of people are investing, but have a lot of debt that they're paying high interest rates on. So, you know, even if you're making money while you invest, chances are you're probably not making enough to cover how much you're paying in interest on your debt. So it doesn't really matter. So I like to tell people that, yes, now is a good time to invest and get in the stock market. But at the same time, prioritize debt repayment right now. That should be your priority if you know you're still blessed to be working and have that type of income coming in. The third most common question that I'm receiving from people is how should they handle their student loans? Or people are kind of confused at how their student loans are going to work right now. You know, for the next six months, federal student loans, um, payments are paused. So you don't have to worry about payments. They're paused automatically. There's nothing that you have to do to go in and pause the payments. So that's something that you don't necessarily have to have on your plate. And during this time, you also won't be paying interest on your federal student loans. So I tell people that if you're in debt and you have debts that has a lot of high interest rates, for example, you know, credit card debts or different things of that nature, try taking what you would have normally paid in your student loans monthly. And now start adding that to debts that, you know, are still accumulating interest or still costing you more money. So take this time now, you know, to allocate those resources that would have been going to your student loans. And I, I didn't even realize that that had happened. The student loan payments got halted. And then all of a sudden, uh, my wife told me, you know, no payment came out of our, our account for that. And so and that's because they didn't charge us this month. So, Stefan, if someone has found themselves all of a sudden without an income, what do you recommend they do to rein in their expenses and kind of get things in order so that they can survive as long as possible on that limited income? There's really three things that I would kind of recommend during this time for someone who finds themselves in that predicament. Pretty practical things that you can do. They're not too complicated or anything like that. The first one is I recommend people do what I call a subscription audit. You know, a lot of people, there's a lot of subscription services now, a lot of things that people are paying for monthly. And, you know, when it's only $10 here, $15 here, you know, it's easy to kind of lose track of those type of subscriptions, but they do add up. And you don't realize just how much they add up until you go through and you realize, okay, I may be spending a hundred or so extra dollars on these subscriptions that I haven't used in months, which you know, on the surface level may not seem like a lot, but, you know, $100 during this time is groceries. It could be a bill. It's a lot of things that people could use during this time. 
So I like to encourage people to, you know, go through their monthly statement, whether that's a credit card or a bank account, and, you know, take a pen and go through and mark each subscription service that they have, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, or whatever, just go through and mark each one of them. And then, you know, sit there and say, okay, well, I haven't used this one in however long, maybe I can do without it. So different things like that, I kind of encourage people to go through and do, especially during this time where every penny counts. Again, because you'd be surprised just how often, you know, you're spending $50 a month on things that you don't even utilize. And then, you know, that's $600 a year that's kind of going out to something that could have went to something more productive. So that's the first one. Second, I want to tell people to consider a balance transfer credit card. You know, a lot of people are in credit card debt, especially now if you're not working, um, you may be resorting a lot more to your credit card for purchases. And so a lot of people aren't aware of the balance transfer credit card options, which essentially allows you to open up a brand new credit card and you can transfer your debt from your previous credit cards to your new credit card. So you'll have the same amount of debt, but the thing that this does for you is a lot of times you start off with 0% interest for a time frame, anywhere from 12 to 15 months. So if you're paying you know, high interest rates on two credit cards, consider getting a balance transfer credit card, combining those two balance on a balance transfer credit card, and then taking advantage of, you know, that year to that year and four months or however long of no interest to really knock down that principal. And this can save, you know, a lot of money over time. And so that's something else I would like to have people consider. Third is just also utilize the resources that they're out there. Mainly when it comes to unemployment right now, you know, a lot of Americans are applying for unemployment. It's at record highs right now. But at the same time, there's a large population who doesn't realize that they're eligible for unemployment right now, whether that's self-employed people, contractors, gig economy workers, you know, Uber, Lyft drivers, DoorDash, Postmates deliveries, freelancers. So, you know, it's a lot of people who traditionally wouldn't be eligible for unemployment who can now access these type of services that, you know, need to take advantage of it. You know, a lot of times you pay taxes um, for situations like this where you need these type of services and things. So take advantage of it is the third one I like to say. Three, I like that. Three things. That's good. Um, the the balance transfer credit card. I think you know I, you 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 said this. I think the key there is that you actually then do take that time to pay it down. Absolutely, that's the key. Because you know once that introductory period is over, you'll be right back paying interest. And if you're not diligent about putting a plan together to get out of that debt during that time, you'll find yourself in that same situation again. So yeah, that's a very good point. Please have a plan together to play that off. Well, Stefan, I'm really interested in your perspective as an African-American all this. We know that the coronavirus is disproportionately bringing sickness and financial pain to communities of color. So what are you witnessing? Uh, what do you wish the rest of us knew or understood about the reality of what's going on right now in communities of color? The main thing I want to bring up about that, um, you know, outside of the disproportionate health concerns with the coronavirus, on the financial end, I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, just how many of these problems are systematic and have been systematic for a long time. You know, so a lot of communities of color don't necessarily have access to traditional financial products and services, which is why so many are underbanked. And that's kind of how, you know, you have 
payday loans and check cashing businesses and all these places popping up in low income areas is because, you know, they don't have these traditional banking services and access to those. And so, you know, while being underbanked, which means, you know, not having a checkings or a savings account is a problem regardless, is now becoming more evident of a problem. So you can take the stimulus check, for example, you know, without a checking or a savings account, you generally, you don't have a routing or an accounting number, which means, you know, you can't have your stimulus check directly deposited to you. You have to get it mailed to you, which, you know, could take weeks or months on end. And, you know, that's time right there. That's critical right now when people need access to the money, they need groceries, they need to pay their bills. And so, you know, not having this account may not have seemed a big deal before, but now when the time frame of that stimulus check arriving means the difference between eating or not, then you start seeing some of these systematic problems that are coming into play. The government also has programs in place during times like this. Um, you can take the Paycheck Protection Program, for example, you know, which essentially allocated $659 billion for small businesses to you know, keep people on payroll, keep them paying, um, kind of keep business going. Um, but you know, there have been many reports that a lot of minority business owners have kind of been shut out of these loan programs. Um, in fact, NBC just ran a piece on April 29th that kind of highlighted, you know, just how disproportionate these loan disbursements are. And so, you know, then you're in a case where, you know, minority business owners can't necessarily access resources that they need to keep their businesses going. And so, you know, that presents a different problem, you know, then they, you know, likely go out of business and, you know, then their family's livelihood is in danger. So, you know, it's kind of like a domino effect. A lot of people don't really realize it's kind of ingrained into how the financial system works. You know, it's pretty complex. Nothing is really clear cut or straightforward. And so when you kind of have these different factors in place, a lot of people are definitely more susceptible to kind of falling victim to these circumstances. So that's the main thing that I would like people to really understand is just how a lot of these problems are systematic. It's not necessarily things that people themselves did to put themselves in that position. Nobody purposely went out their way to put themselves in a position. That's just kind of how the cards came and, you know, that's the cards they were dealt, kind of have you have to deal with it. Situations like this really point out just the disproportion and economic inequality can do to people during times like this. Well, thanks for sharing your, your perspective on that, Stefan. Well, I know we're talking about finances in the time of coronavirus. I'm also wondering if we can just talk about some of the fundamentals about personal finances that are true pandemic or not. So would you be willing to just help us understand some of the basics? Absolutely. Okay, cool. So if I have a lot of debt, say student loan debt, credit card debt, car loans, and it's getting a little overwhelming, what's your advice? So it's the best way for me to pay down my debt. The first thing you should do is, for one, be aware of all your debts. The second most important thing you do is be aware of the interest that you're paying on each debt. You know, it's one thing to know all your debts. It's another thing to know, okay, this debt is costing me a lot more than this one in terms of interest. So that should be the first thing that you can do because that's going to be, you know, the basis of a lot of debt repayment strategies from there. Um, my favorite one that I like to recommend to people is called the debt snowball strategy. And essentially the debt snowball strategy works like this. You list all your debts out. Um, you place them in order by interest rates, starting with the one with the highest interest rate. 
on every debt that's not the one with the highest interest rate, you want to pay the bare minimum payment due that you can. $25, 50 or 100 whatever, whatever the minimum payment is, that's what you want to pay. The debt with the highest interest rate is where you want to focus you know, your excess cash and knock down that debt. Once you have that debt paid off, the key is to take whatever you were paying on that debt monthly and apply it to you know your debt with the second highest interest rate. So for example, if you were paying $100 on your debt with the highest interest rate and $25 a month on your debt with the second highest interest rate, once the first debt is paid off, you should be paying $125 monthly on your debt with the second highest interest rate. Um, and it's called a debt snowball strategy because if you picture snowball kind of rolling down a hill, it kind of picks up and gets bigger as you go along. So the key is, you know, your monthly payment for each debt should get bigger as you go along, but you'll be spending the same amount each month. You're just applying it to a different place. That strategy is good because, again, it helps knock out debts with the highest interest rates, you know, the ones that are costing you the more, which is very much effective. You know, if you're paying $400 a month on debts, you're probably better off paying $300 a month on the one with the highest interest and then kind of dispersing the other 100 amongst the other ones if you're in that type of situation. The debt snowball effect. I like it. So let's talk about spending. I'm assuming that you're, you recommend that people get on a budget. So what's your advice for making a budget you can actually stick with? My golden rule when it comes to budgeting um, is set a realistic budget. People like to consider budgeting a chore. You know, when they hear budgeting, the first thing that they think about is just how much they can't spend. You know, kind of like if somebody mentions a diet, usually the first thing you think about is what you can't eat, you know, and things like that. So, you know, the first step is to set a realistic budget that, you know, that you can stick to. That way it doesn't seem so strenuous on you. You know, it's easier to stick with it, especially early on when you're just getting started. You're just, you know, trying to develop that mindset of budgeting. You know, you don't want to kind of stretch it out and make it seem way harder than what it actually has to be. The second step I tell people is to break down their debts into three broad categories, um, needs, wants, and savings. With your needs mean things like rent, groceries, health insurance, water, electricity, um, wants being phone, Wi-Fi, believe it or not, um, you know, car payment, gym, and then you have like your savings and debt repayment, things of that nature. So with those three broad categories, I tell people, you know, when you're first starting a budget, you should know how much you're spending in each category. You should know I'm spending X amount of needs, X amount of wants, X amount of savings. And then from there, you know, if you don't know where to begin, you're like, okay, I know how much I'm spending, but that doesn't necessarily help me budgeting. I like to tell people to consider what's called the balanced money formula. And essentially what the balanced money formula is, it says your income, 50% of it should go to needs, 30% of it should go to wants, and 20% of it should go to savings and debt repayment. So, you know, if you're bringing in $2,000 monthly, essentially you would want, you know, $1,000 of that to go to your needs, 600, you know, to go to your wants, and then 400 to go to your savings and debt repayment. And for a lot of people, you know, this isn't necessarily realistic, even if, you know, you're bringing in $3,000 a month, there's a good chance that you're spending more than 1500 on needs, um, especially the way rent prices and things like that are nowadays. But that should be something that you should try to work towards. So, you know, once you have those figures set and you have those amounts set, your goal should be, to, okay, well, 
what once can I eliminate to get it to 30% of my, you know, income or, you know, what debt can I go ahead and eliminate that way I can get that to 20% of my income and different things like that. And so when you do it that way, it doesn't seem, again, it doesn't seem like a chore. It seems more so like something you can work towards and, you know, adjust your income and habits and things like that accordingly. It's really good advice. I like that. So a lot of people leave college with a lot of student loan debt. I did. What's your advice for people who are considering taking on student loan debt to pay for school? And if I have a ton of student loan debt, how should I think of it compared to the other types of debt that I have? First, I would tell people, don't let the thought of taking on student loans be the reason you don't consider college. You're kind of investing in yourself. You're betting on yourself. So I wouldn't let that be the sole thing to stop you. You know, close to, I believe, 70% of people end up taking out loans at some point for college. So it happens. You know, that's the par for course for a lot of people. A lot of people leave school with debt. Um, unfortunately, that's just kind of how it is. Luckily, when it comes to student loan debt repayment, that may be the most flexible type of debt there is. Student loan providers, especially if you have a federal student loans, they offer some of the most flexible terms that you'll ever see with any type of debt. You know, you can have standard repayment plans that are just X amount of months for X amount of years. You have plans that start low and get higher as your income increases. You know, you have plans that are based on your income. So whatever type of, you know, situation you're in financially, generally your student loan provider is very good at adjusting to that. So, you know, if you're diligent about it, you know, a lot of times you can find the resources and come to terms to make it, you know, sustainable for a little bit. And I know a lot of people who end up taking various different loans in order to get the amount they need. You know, they may have three or so loans. And so they consider, you know, consolidating loans, which essentially where you take multiple loans and you combine them into one loan, which, you know, gives you the convenience of having a single loan in one place that you can keep up with the payments and things of that nature. And while it's a good idea, I do like to warn people that, you know, once you consolidate your loans, you become ineligible for certain loan forgiveness programs that the government offers. And the most common example of this would be for, you know, teachers. A lot of teachers, you know, when they're teaching in the back of their mind, they know, okay, after X amount of years, my loans will be forgiven. So, you know, they kind of take that into consideration when they're accepting positions and thinking of career paths and things like that. Um, but, you know, if they decide to consolidate their loans and then can participate in this program. So, again, you know, while consolidation in general is a good idea, if you're one of those workers in a profession that can take advantage of loan forgiveness, be aware that that kind of erases that possibility. Okay. So tell me how the credit score works. Why does it matter? What's a good score? What factors go into the score? And how can I make mine better if it's not so good? Okay. So credit is basically your trust score. You know, banks, lenders, institutions of that nature, you know, they have no idea who you are. You know, you're just a name. You're just a face. They have no idea how trustworthy you are or anything like that. So essentially, they use your credit score to gauge, you know, just how trustworthy are you. How likely are you to pay me back what I'm loaning you? And how likely are you to do it on time? So your credit score is important because it applies to a lot of different places in your life. You know, when you go for credit cards, mortgages, auto loans, you know, nowadays utilities, even landlords check credit reports. So it's basically, you know, your financial reputation that's going to follow you throughout life. 
And with it being so important, you know, a lot of people still don't understand exactly how it's calculated. Your credit score is made up of five things. The first one is your payment history, which accounts for 35% of your credit score. And it's kind of straightforward, you know, do you make your payments on time? You know, that's the most important thing that people are concerned about, that you pay me on full and in time. So that's 35% of your score. The second thing is called credit utilization. And this is where a lot of people don't really grasp the concept. So credit utilization is essentially out of all the credit that you have available to you, how much are you actually using? So, you know, if you have a credit card with a $5,000 credit limit and you're spending $1,000 on it, your credit utilization will be 20%. The key is you want to keep this number below 30%. 30% is the magic number. If you can keep your credit utilization below 30%, um, you put yourself in a very good predicament to grow your credit score. You know, they want to know, okay, even though you have this credit, they don't necessarily want to see that you have to use all that credit. You know what I mean? Because then it's kind of a red flag. But 30% is the magic number. Um, and credit utilization also accounts for 30% of your credit score. The third thing would be credit history. And this is essentially, you know, how long have you been dealing with credit? Um, a lender or a bank would prefer to trust somebody who's been dealing with credit for 20 years versus, you know, somebody who may have just graduated from college and just got their first credit card and, you know, may not know how credit works. Again, you know, a lot of people find that out through trial and error that, you know, inevitably comes with time. So the longer you have dealing with credit, the better that is for your score. So that makes up 15%. The fourth one is credit mix. Not only do they want to see that you can deal with credit, they want to see that you can deal with various types of credit because, you know, various types of credit kind of operate different ways. So, you know, can you manage your car payments while also managing credit card payments while also paying your utilities on time? So they kind of want to see, you know, can you multitask with these type of things and still be responsible with dealing with the money? And the last thing is what they call hard increase. And essentially what those are is, Anytime you apply for a credit line, the creditor or whoever you're applying with does a hard inquiry on your credit report, which basically means they pull your credit report to see your scores, see your payment history and those different things. And each time you do this, it dings your credit report a little bit. It gradually goes off of time. Um, you know, it doesn't affect it for too long, but each time you apply for credit, it does do that. And a lot of people wonder why and mainly it's because, you know, if you have somebody who may be applying for a lot of credit at once, that could be a red flag that they're in financial trouble and they need access to a lot of money, which, you know, a lot of time means that it's a good chance that they're not going to pay it back how they need to. So people like to be aware of like, okay, just how often is this person looking to get credit? Who are they looking to get credit from? So that's the fifth and last thing that makes up the credit report. Oh, awesome. Um, that was really interesting. I didn't know all those. Stefan, I always try to end every episode with some sort of practice, some sort of activity that'll help people get better in some way. I'm wondering if you have some action or activity our listeners might do just to get a better handle on some small part of their finances today. And if so, what is it? Actually, right along the lines of the credit discussion that we were just having, I encourage people to go to annualcreditreport.com. A lot of people aren't aware that you can get one free credit report from each of the three major bureaus once every 12 months. 
And so, you know, even if you know about credit, a lot of people haven't looked at their credit report in years. They aren't aware of what their score is. And so, you know, it's free. Again, you can do it once every 12 months. So I encourage people, again, go to annualcreditreport.com, you know, enter in your information, get your credit report, and at least be knowledgeable of where you stand so you can start putting steps and plans together to, you know, fix it if it's bad or correct some mistakes that may be on there and things of that nature, which is also important because 25% of credit reports have issues on them or mistakes that affect credit scores. So you may not even be aware. So definitely try that out. Excellent. That's good advice. And that brings us to our close. I want to thank my guest, Stefan Walters, for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks so much, Stefan. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Okay, Stefan, if people want to connect with you or learn more from you, how might they do that? The easiest way to connect with me would either be going to stefanwalters.com. It has a lot of my personal contact information on there that you can go to. And you can also follow Finesse and Finances on social media. Again, we post a lot of good content, a lot of good entertaining content, things you probably won't see from a lot of traditional financial institutions and publications. So, you know, you can follow us on there and learn a bit, laugh a bit, enjoy a bit and learn how to finesse your finances. Sounds good. Thanks again, Stefan. Uh, if you'd like to learn more from Stefan, within the next few months, Being by the Big No intends to produce an online course taught by him, and it's going to bring his practical money management advice to the platform. So look for that in the near future. Look, I know what we all want. We all just want to get back to normal. But we have to accept that normal, that's over. And if we really think about it, for a lot of us, normal wasn't working in the first place. Normal was stressing us out. Normal was making us sad. Normal was making us sick. Normal was making us broke. We can do way better than normal. Let's get Beyond Normal. Beyond Normal is a production of The Big No, where renowned experts teach the skills of health and well-being on demand. You can learn more about our licensable and custom health content solutions at thebigno.com. That's thebigkno.com. Beyond Normal is produced by Nate Matson. Assistant producer is TMR. Our theme music is from premiumbeat.com. The show is edited by Damon Kaler. I'm your host, Tom Godfrey. Goodbye.